month or so ago, I don't know how long, but we probably all experienced it together unless you were out of, out of Texas at the time, the freeze. I remember driving around about halfway through the freeze, a couple days in, we're all just stuck frozen in the middle of it, driving around the neighborhood and everything was just dark. I'm guessing a lot of y'all have that experience. It was weird, because you're used to seeing one thing, but you're not seeing it. You're seeing another. You're seeing no lights on houses. You're cold. We were all cold. You're cold. It's dark. There's not a lot of light. It's not utter darkness, but it's not. it wasn't fun. And darkness can be cozy as long as light's an option. But when light is no longer an option and when heat's no longer an option and you don't know when it's going to come back on, it's scary. And what I just wanted to focus on, to meditate on, not so much in a sermon as much as in just a, a meditation together during this briefer gathering here in the middle of the day, in the middle of this beautiful day, on dark, on Black Friday or Good Friday, was just one verse from Mark. Mark 15, and Mark says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So, darkness is not fun. Lack of heat, not fun during a freeze, during a power outage. It can even be downright terrifying. If you've been in a cave, You've turned off your, if you've been in a cave and you've been with a group, at some point your, your leader will have said, turn off, the, turn off all of your headlights. And you turn off your headlamps together and there's just, you can't even see your fingers in front of your face. Just imagine that forever. What happens is if the darkness lasts long enough and if it's black enough and if it's total enough, everything dies. Not only that, there's utter disorientation. You don't know up from down. There's panic that sets in. And what we read about here in Mark is more than just a physical darkness. It's more than an eclipse. It's more than there being no light in the sky. It's utter darkness descending upon our Savior. So I just want to meditate on that just for the next few minutes together. Um, what we, the picture that we see and what happened to Jesus on the cross is that the first three hours from 9 a.m. until noon, he was on the cross for six hours, at which point at 3 p.m. he died. And for the first three hours, we have light. And Spurgeon makes the point, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, he makes the point that, thank God we had those three hours of light. We got to see all the excruciating, many of the excruciating details that our Lord went through on that cross for us. And I want to talk about, I just want to touch on a few of them. And, and of course, before that, the trial, the whipping, the scourging, the beating, the humiliation. Um, but I want to argue that the next three hours, when darkness descends from noon until three, where things are obscured from our sight, is when it, get, when it is the very worst. When we can't see what's happening to our Lord, it's when it's the very worst, when the darkness descends on him. Um, Spurgeon goes on to make the point that this, this wasn't just a solar, this wasn't a solar eclipse. Um, we are in Passover week right now, and certainly this was Passover, 
And Passover is a time of full moon. So the moon is right now. It's waning gibbous. It's on the wane, but it's, it's close to full now. And about three days ago, it was full. Um, so you can't have a solar eclipse on a full moon. It has to be on a new moon. This wasn't an eclipse. Again, it's a reminder that this is a preternatural darkness that you can feel, something that sinks into your bones, and it sank all the way down, not only into our Savior's bones, but into the depth of his soul. And I just want to try to sort of unpack that just for a few minutes together. One verse that this will take us back to is Genesis 1-2, the second verse in the Bible, where we are told by Moses that there was darkness before God spoke and created the first thing, in verse 3, there was darkness. And there was, there was a emptiness and there was a void. And because this is the creator on the cross, as he is being torn asunder, body and soul, creation is ripping apart at its seams. It's, it's mourning the undoing of its maker. And so there's a sense in which we're going back to the whole universe is giving, a glim- giving us a glimpse of being undone. And then if you fast forward to Exodus 2, um, Exodus, I believe it's chapter 10, the ninth plague is a plague of darkness. And scholars are pretty much united in saying that the plagues are a lot of things. They are the hand of God heavy for judgment against the Egyptians so that they will let his people go. But they're also, in a sense, if you can think about it this way, and I'll return to this in a second, God removing his hand from creation. Because what are we told in Colossians and elsewhere? God upholds all things by the word of his power. What happens when he stops upholding them? What what happens when he stops causing your heart to beat? What happens when he stops putting breath in your lungs? What happens when he stops keeping the earth going around the sun and holding the planets together and causing all things to grow? I'll tell you what happens. We get a tiny, tiny glimpse into what happens when things go haywire in the Exodus plagues. Creation is literally coming apart at the seams. And that's something of what we see here when the darkness descends, when the creator is being, can I even say this, uncreated, undone, taken apart piece by piece. I just want to touch on a few darknesses. First of all, just the darkness of our ignorance. Just touch down on it for a second, the darkness of our ignorance. We see that here, the darkness of their ignorance and... and um, and then we see, we see us, because he died for us and he died for them. He died for the worst of sinners. I want you to know that. That's the only kind of person he died for, by the way, is sinners. But we see the darkness of their ignorance here as the darkness descends on our Savior. And there are a lot of things I could say, but one of the things that you'll see in this text in Mark and in the other Gospels is they're just taunting him. The people that he's dying for, they're taunting him. And one of the taunts is, hey, we remember that you said that tear down the temple Tear down the temple completely, and I will. Jesus said, I will raise it up in three days. He said, yeah, right, that's impossible. It took 46 plus years to build, and it's still not finished. It's magnificent. You can't do that. You're on the cross now. Far from it. You failed. And the ignorance there, of course, being that he is accomplishing that very thing because he is the temple. He is the only place where God and man meet in peace through innocent sacrifice so the guilty can come before a holy God and not be eviscerated and not be destroyed. He is accomplishing those very, that very thing. He is being undone to death and hell, and he will rise three days later. And so they're saying, You're, you have failed, you have failed, and he's actually succeeding in fulfilling the very words that they're pointing out. 
And, you know, a similar thing with, hey, you're the Savior. You saved other people. You restored blind, blind people to sight. You raised people from the dead. Everywhere you went, you healed. And, of course, they're doing this taunting him, right? You can't even save yourself. And they're taunting him because they're saying, you're powerless. A Savior would be powerful. And in his very powerlessness, he's saving. They don't even know that what he's doing is he's dying in their place. If he had come down off the cross, if he had been provoked by their taunts, then he would no longer have been a savior. We would have no hope, but he didn't. He stayed up there. And so one of the things that darkness as our savior is hanging on that tree as a curse for us reveals is our ignorance. And I just want to say, before moving on to the second bit of darkness that, that we see, that I think so often in life, we, we need to hang on to this. So often when God is working his very salvation in your life or in the life of someone else, it seems like he's not doing exactly what we think he should be doing. Exert your power, Lord. Where are you? I'm working through this pain and privation. It is my, it is the best way that I work. Life, life is a V-shaped life. To, to truly live, we have to die first. And so much of that death comes when our wills are crossed, when we don't get what we want, when we get sick, when a freeze happens, when we don't get the house, when something happens to our family. On and on and on it goes, right? I could, I could enumerate examples. So often we think, Lord, where are you? When he's hanging on that cross going, I am working. Right now, I am saving. So I hope that encourages you. We see the darkness of our ignorance. We see, secondly, we see the darkness of sin. And I won't belabor the point because we could stay here for the next year, right? And, and, and more. But we see the darkness of sin. Just dwelling for a second on what we can't see again in this obscurity as our Savior hangs there in the darkness. What we can't see is his, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, his not only bearing the weight of every sin of those who would look on him as Savior, but becoming that sin somehow. In the mystery of God, he became that sin for us. He became that sin for us. Um, and just the word, the word that comes to mind as I think about this, and you can't fully unpack it, can you? But he did it. He paid for it. He became it. Is um, I think about how when, when, there's a, when you commit a sin of perversion, you feel oily, feel heavy. You feel the, the heaviness of guilt. You feel weighed down. There's a depression that sets in. There's a hopelessness. There's a despair. All these things are attendant. Uh, your soul feels hard when you get angry. All these things, uh, a sharp dissatisfaction when you don't get what you want, and on and on and on it goes. Jesus internalized those things to the nth degree, and we're used to those feelings because we sin all the time. Jesus had never tasted it before. He was perfect. And he bore that and he became that on that cross. And so we see the darkness of our sin here as he becomes our sin. And as, in, as we believe on him and look to him as our savior, as, as we gain and become his righteousness. But thirdly, we see the darkness of the demonic host. Again, something that you don't see so much articulated, but we know that this is happening to him as he's being torn asunder, body and soul. He's bearing not just the darkness of sin. What's he bearing? He's bearing the darkness of the demonic host. 
Satan is having a field day right now. And the word that comes to mind when I think about the darkness of demonization is terror. Abject terror. You ever seen someone demonized? You probably have and don't realize it. You could have been. We all have. I'm just telling you right now, you probably might not have known it. The demonic hosts are real, and they are about tearing us apart and taking us down to hell. And anyone who is not in Christ will go there, my friends. This is why Jesus died on the cross. And I'm telling you, there's a terror with the dark hosts. And that terror, Jesus willingly opened himself up to. That terror that every sinner has earned and has opened him or herself up to for every single person that would look to him and that will look to him before he returns. He opened himself up to, I think of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, as he opens himself up to this ravening party of of haters and carnivores who just go after him and tear him apart. There's a terror there. And Jesus was utterly terrified for us. And he descended into hell and he endured hell. Um, You know, Satan, he, he loves to obscure the cross. So I think part of the darkness, and we'll get to this next, part of the darkness was creation was mourning. As he was being bruised, creation was being bruised, as it were, was being undone. As he was being undone, the wrath of God was being poured out on him, and the, scar, the skies were blackened as a result. But I think part of this is Satan is having his day, and what is he? He's the prince of darkness. He does what he does under the guise, under the blanket of darkness, because it's shameful. It's shameful. And so what he's doing is he's enjoying covering up the cross, and he's having a field day, and he can taste Victory. He can smell victory. He loves to conceal the cross. But in this very time where he's concealing the cross, Christ is enduring. He's, he is bringing about maybe the greatest part of our salvation. And he, as he endures things that we can't see, like the wrath of God, like the full force of the demonic host against us, like becoming our sin. And then he tastes hell for us, right? Somehow, again, in the mystery of God, the eternal hell that every single one of us deserves. If we look to him as our Lord and Savior, he took in our place. Somehow contracted into a span of time, Jesus Christ drank every single bit of our eternal punishment that we deserve down to the dregs. Every single bit of it. And as I say down to the dregs, one of the things I think of is the fact that he was offered a drink a couple times. And one of the times, the first time was he was offered that wine. And what was that wine laced with? Anyone know? Myrrh. And what was myrrh? Among other things, it dulled pain. It was an anesthetic. And what did Jesus do to that first cup that was laced with myrrh? Did he accept it? No. Why? He refused it because he had to taste everything, every single last drop of every bit of terror and sin and oiliness and guilt and regret and heaviness and hell that we would have experienced. He tasted it all with clear senses as the darkness literally took him over and took him down by his own choice with clear eyes, never having sinned, never having tasted sin, he became sin. And finally, one more of the myriad ways that the darkness descended on him, and this is the worst. 
I can say with confidence, being ignorant as I am, this was the worst. He tasted and he drank it to the dregs. What descended on him was the darkness of God's wrath. He drank the full cup, which is where we're going in a second, to remember that, to feed on Christ again, to drink him, to say, you are the only way out. You are the only way of salvation because in dying, I died. In your death, I died by faith. You paid for it, and so I'm free. But the darkness of God's wrath was the worst, worse, worse than Satan and all his demonic hosts having their day with him. Worse. Because God is the only uncreated being in the universe, and he has all power and all authority. And because he is holy, he hates sin. He hates evil. He hates what it does. Man, if you saw your kid drinking rat poison, you would run over and do anything you could to stop it. That's what happens to us body and soul when we sin. It, it tears us apart at the very fabric of who we are. And God cannot coexist peaceably with it because it's evil and he is so perfectly good. And so Jesus became that which God hates. He became it, sin, incarnate, somehow in the mystery of God. And so God poured out his just white hot wrath against evil and sin. Why? So that it could be killed and buried and ended so that you would not be destroyed, you who look to Jesus. And the thing that I think of um, in, with, with his enduring the darkness of hell, with his enduring the darkness of God's wrath, the thing that I think of, and there are many things we could talk about, is I think of not just what was poured out on him, the wrath against sin and evil that he became for us as our fall guy, but also the privation, because I don't think that's talked about that much. Sometimes it says hell is the absence of God, but not only. It's the absence of God and all of his goodness, but it's also his just judgment against evil. Jesus, at this moment, endured both. He got the worst of both worlds. He got all the wrath of God against sin instead of the smiling face that he'd always enjoyed from before time began forever, because he's always existed. He never knew anything else. He, he not only got that, he got God pulling away, the absence of the goodness of God, the pulling away. And uh, some of that, I think, and some of the rest of what I've touched on today is described in this short phrase where Jesus describes hell, and he describes it in a lot of ways, right, as an unquenchable fire. But how else does he describe it based on this theme I'm preaching on? He describes it as being what? Cast out into outer darkness. So there's something of the fact that not only is he suffering the wrath of God, but he's suffering the ultimate exclusion. Man, you know the good feeling that you get when you're brought into you're brought into a circle of people that you love. You're brought into, into a home on a dark, cold, powerless day that's full of, full of light and warmth. And there's a fire crackling and there's high back chairs and dogs running around and maybe a rotisserie chicken on the spit, right? And kids having a time and there's glasses of wine and mugs of beer and all the good stuff that you can think of. And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, Bookshelves lining the walls, of course, because that has to be part of the goodness and warmth and cheer. Not to mention, again, all the social aspects of being brought inside, to use C.S. Lewis's word, the inner ring, the inner circle. Jesus enjoyed being in the ultimate inner circle, the Trinity. Happy, happy is God. Happy is that holy communion, the Trinity, full and perfect. And he was cast out. 
cast out, the hopelessness of being cast out into outer darkness, the disorientation, I can't see anything, the wrath of God, the terror of God is descending upon my soul, and somehow in that span of time, the hopelessness that every single person that goes to hell who, tr- who decides not to trust in Jesus but to trust in him or herself instead, the hopelessness of knowing, the gnashing of teeth that responds, that comes as a response to knowing there's no second chance. I will never, ever, ever be able to taste anything good again. No good society, no good fellowship, no good anything. He, 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 that soaked into his very bones and heart. Somehow, somehow on the cross, that darkness of being excluded from the ultimate open door so that you and I could be brought in. And that's the invitation that we give out to people. Um, as I close, I know it's Black Friday. It's Good Friday for us because it was so black and dark and horrible for him. I just want to finish with this. Um, that's the darkness, some of the darkness, some of the, a, a tiny piece of the darkness that he, that he took on for us. But also we see something at the very end of this darkness. So it's dark from noon to three. Right, it's dark from noon to three. As, as at the very end of that time, what happens? He breathes his last. He shouts out, not, not the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That came at the end of that time as well. But right after that, he shouts out. He shouts out, not a cry of dereliction and defeat, but a cry of victory. And he gives up his soul and he says, Father, I trust you. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he says, it's finished. The work is finished. And to prove it, what happens? What is the last thing that Mark records? The curtain. The curtain in the temple the very pres- that divides unholy man from the very presence of the living God, which is the source of all life and beauty and goodness. It's torn. It's rent asunder from top, because it's God who does it, to bottom. Just in case anyone thought, oh, that was a man that did that. This huge, thick, double phone book size, hand-woven curtain dividing God and his goodness from man and our sin is ripped in half from the top as Jesus utters his last and loud cry of victory. In other words, anyone can now come. The way is open because the darkness has descended on me and it has taken me down, but in death I am victorious and I have made a way through my broken flesh and poured out body and poured out blood for anyone to come, no matter how egregious your sin. I've tasted it, I've paid for it, I've drunk it to the dregs. Stop trying to do it on your own and come. And so the way is open, and that is the goodness. That is why we call Black Friday Good Friday. And so, well, I'm not going to give too much away. We know what's coming on Sunday. We know we worship a risen Savior. He's alive, right? We've used our imagination to put ourselves in this darkness. He did all the work necessary to restore us, but he also did all the work necessary, and we'll talk a lot more about, more about this in two days, to restore everything. And so I want to take us back now as I close beyond, beyond Genesis 1-2 to the next verse. What happens in the next verse? As the darkness is there, as the helter-skelter, as the void and the weltering waste are there, he speaks, right? In verse 3, in Genesis 1-3, he speaks, and what does he say? And God said... Let there be light. And light's coming. 
because of what he did, because he absorbed the darkness and buried it, light is coming that is going to literally, and that is now. And this is what the disciples got so excited about, and this is why they turned the world upside down. It wasn't just a dead man rising from the grave. It was a new creation that was broken in, a new age that was supposed to be, it was supposed to keep itself at the end of the age, but it had already broken into this age because of what Jesus did. And it is coming. The light is coming. The new creation is coming. And it will not come in any other way. It won't come through another system. Not only is there no other way to have peace with God and to have life and joy, there's also no other world system that is going to remake this world. We see man has tried. We see man trying in a lot of ways today. It will fail. It won't work. Only through Christ will all things be restored. And yea, it's going out even now. It's going on even now. Let me finish with, appropriately, if you know me, I give the last word to Tim Keller. This is on the very last page in his epilogue of maybe the last book he'll write in this creation anyway. He's faithfully run the race. He has pancreatic cancer. Pray for him. He wrote this with pancreatic cancer in the throes of COVID in New York. And he says this at the end of the book. He says, because it can be said truly of Jesus Christ that on the cross, darkness was his only friend, and so he paid for your sins, then you can know that in your darkness, God is still there as your friend. He has not abandoned you. He's not going to take two payments for the same debt. Jesus paid for your sins, and now he loves you.